Welcome to the Altmetric Podcast, where we bring you the science stories that are being discussed the most online, so you can find out why. I'm your host, Lucy Goodchild. Have you ever wondered why men tend to have more facial hair than women? A recent study suggests that the evolution of the beard might not be only about attraction, but rather to do with fighting over mates. In this episode of the Altmetric Podcast, we hear from one of the people behind the study about why their controversial theory has been so popular. Males and females are often different in the animal kingdom, and according to the theory of sexual selection, this can be down to attraction or competition. Usually the males are either trying to attract a female mate or fighting over them. One characteristic that differs in male and female humans is the presence of facial hair. In general, men can grow beards while women can't. But why? What has led to the evolution of this characteristic? Dr David Carrier, who's Professor of Biology at the University of Utah in the US, thought it might be to do with fighting rather than attracting, and he and his team set out to explore the question. Their study, published in Integrative Organismal Biology, was a hit, garnering an altmetric attention score of 595 thanks to social media attention and coverage in news outlets around the world. I spoke to Dr Carrier about the research, the theories behind it, and why the findings are controversial. Thank you so much for talking to me. I have to say I'm very, very excited to hear more about this research. I'd love to hear about you first. So what's your background? So I identify myself as a comparative biomechanist. I'm interested in the biomechanics of really animal movement. So it's musculoskeletal biomechanics. And I'm particularly interested in sort of the, the evolutionary history of vertebrates and how the demands and limitations that the physical world places on an animal, how that has influenced the evolution of different groups of vertebrates. So I spent much of my time, actually almost all my time, working on uh, different groups of tetrapods. These are, these are vertebrates that live on land, the four-legged vertebrates and just bounced around from group to group or lineage to lineage based on the particular questions that we are trying to solve in the lab at the time. So I've done a lot of work on, on lizards uh, and mammals, looking at the interaction between the locomotor and ventilatory system, looking at a variety of different groups in terms of just mechanics of movement, locomotion. And uh, most recently, we've become focused on the interface between how animals walk and run and how they deal with physical conflict. So, so when there's a conflict between two individuals, oftentimes it, it's resolved with the threat of a fight or an actual fight. And in most cases, there is this relationship between the anatomy that's used for locomotion and the anatomy that's used in, in that fight. And so we're constantly sort of looking at that interface and trying to make sense out of what's, what's driving the evolution of form, what's driving the evolution of physiology. Is it the locomotor demands or is it the demands of actually having to come to blows with, with another individual? 
Wow, that's fascinating. And I'm already running, running, so to speak, in my head, um, sort of images of, of how humans fight and how they run and, you know, using their arms. Yeah, humans, our lineage, the, the great apes, but then particularly the bipedal apes turn out to be particularly interesting for that question. I and mean, I think that's why we've ended up uh, spending a lot of time looking at our ancestors and, and modern humans is that there is oftentimes a conflict between what makes sense for, for economical locomotion and what makes sense for uh, physical aggression, anatomically, in terms of the, uh, the musculoskeletal system. And physical aggression, of course, comes back in the research we're about to talk about. Can you explain, first of all, what sexual dimorphism is and what it has to do with beards? Yes. Okay. Well, I think sexual, talking about sexual dimorphism is, is probably the right way to start for this conversation. And this comes out of sexual selection theory. It's uh, really a topic that Charles Darwin started. And he realized that in addition to competing for survival, just for resources, animals also oftentimes end up competing for access to mates, both males and females. And sometimes the characters that make sense for competing for, for mates don't necessarily make sense for long-term survival. And so he, he, he labeled this topic uh, sexual selection. It's a type of natural selection, but it's specifically focused on competition for mates. And so what you find is throughout the uh, animal kingdom, females are the sex that invest most in their offspring. Uh, Maybe it's just the energy in the egg versus the energy in the sperm. There's a lot more energy in an egg than there is in sperm. And so there's more investment by females. And that uh, female investment is particularly pronounced in mammals, where you have uh, females basically incubating the young in their bodies for a period of time, followed by a period of lactation after the young are born. So there's this really intense investment by the females in, in, in mammals in their offspring. And as a result, females tend to be picky about who they mate with, which males they mate with. And that choosiness by the female puts males in the position of having to compete. And again, that's true throughout the animal kingdom. There's different ways that males compete. But in mammals, the primary competition in many, many species, let's, let's say most species, comes down to physical competition. It comes down to the threat of a fight or an actual fight. And so when you look at differences between males and females and mammals, what we call sexual dimorphism, where the anatomy or the physiology or the behavior differs in females versus males, that sexual dimorphism is in most cases, not always, but most cases being driven by the male-male competition, males competing for access to females. So for example, in most species of mammals, males are larger than females, and that has been shown to be associated with this physical competition. Larger size often helps in in a fight, and this difference in body size between males and females is often the most dramatic example of sexual dimorphism. So if we come to to great apes and we come to humans, there are a a variety of ways in which males and females differ in in their anatomy, physiology, and behavior. One of the most uh, pronounced or dramatic differences in humans, and this is unique to our species, is facial hair. So 
compared to the other great apes, human females have less facial hair, whereas males have more. And in the case of males, that facial hair develops at puberty. So whenever you have sexual dimorphism in a trait, that's sort of suggestive that it's about this male-male competition. And particularly when that trait appears in males uh, at puberty, right? That says, okay, it's, it's, it's something that's not needed before uh, the individual is, is ready to start mating. And so again, Darwin focused in on the beard. He noticed that there are a number of different species of mammals in which there is a, a mane, lions, elk, lynx, are examples where there is the neck region is covered by thicker, more pronounced uh, fur. And he speculated that those manes were associated with protection of, of the vulnerable, vulnerable areas of the neck in when males fight. He also thought about human beards, but he, in that case, he fell down on the side that it was associated with attracting females, that somehow male beards were attracted to females. We know that at least in, uh, in Europe and the United States currently, full beards are not necessarily preferred by females. In any case, our interest in the possibility that beards might provide some form of protection to the face came out of this general question. If, if there's sexual dimorphism in, in facial hair, is that in some way associated with physical competition or a fight? That's where the question came from. When, when humans fight, uh, if the desire is to actually kill another individual, we, we tend to show up with weapons. If the desire is just to control or manipulate another individual, then you're gonna get hand-to-hand uh, -hand fighting. And in that physical uh, combat situation, what humans tend to do is use their fist. And the primary target when we strike is, is the face. And you can look at epidemiological studies of emergency rooms around the world and find out what particular aspects of the body are most likely to be injured in a, in a strike when somebody's getting punched. It's almost predominantly bones of the face that are broken if you're looking at which bones break. And one of the bones that breaks most often and is actually maybe the most, one of the most dangerous bones to become broken is the jaw, the lower jaw. So we're thinking that it may not be a coincidence that it is primarily the, the jaw that is uh, covered by the beard. The upper jaw actually breaks as well, and there's, there's some covering of that with, with the mustache. The bones that most often break in the face are the ones that are covered with this, this facial hair in males. Okay, so coming to your study, what, what did you do? Well, what we wanted to do was just test whether or not the facial hair provides mechanical protection to the bones of the face because they are vulnerable in a fight. And we've used human cadavers in some of our studies in the past. That didn't seem practical in this case, but what we wanted to do was actually have a beard or a model of, of the skin and the facial hair that we could put over a material that, that modeled the mechanical properties of bone. And what we ended up doing is for the bone, we used a fiber composite, sort of like fiberglass material that is made specifically to model the physical strength and toughness of bone. 
So we had a pretty good model on that front. The facial hair was harder. And what we ended up using was the skin of a sheep that we uh, purchased from uh, a local slaughterhouse. And so the student who did this work, he was an undergraduate, he uh, would cut out segments or basically little squares of the skin with the fleece and the hair. And he would either leave that intact or he would shave the hair off, the fleece off. And then he used a drop weight impact tester, which is basically just like it sounds. It's a weight that drops from a given height. It has a, a transducer, something we call load cell that measures force. And so the weight would be dropped. There'd be an impact of the tester on the fur or on the skin, which covered the fiber composite material. And we just looked at the force and the energy that was dissipated by that, uh, the sheep fleece and the uh, material that we were using to mimic the bone. And he did it under the two circumstances of having the fleece more or less shaved off and having the fleece intact. And that was, that was the study, compare the forces of impact and the energy of impact with and without the, the fur. My assumption would be that with beard, there's less damage. Yes, uh, that's exactly what happened. The first thing he did in the study was determine what height to drop the weight from. And what he, he found the height at which about half the time, 50% of the time, the composite or bone mimic would break when the skin had the, had the fleece on it. That was the height he used. And then he did the, the comparison of with and without the hair. And the results really surprised me. So we, we've set it up to maximize the effect. And you can think of the, the bone model as being about as strong as the cheekbone or the weak part of the jaw close to where it articulates with the skull. So we use material that was to mimic the delicate parts of the face. And the result was the forces were about 17% greater when the fur wasn't there. And there's 40% more energy absorbed when the fur was there. So a really big effect. That was, that was the surprising thing. But, you know, the forces were small compared to the forces that would be involved in a, a, a solid human punch. Are there any other animals you're looking to, to investigate this with? There has been a number of studies, several studies, thinking about and looking at uh, the way lions fight because the mane is so prominent in them. And uh, there are mixed results that come out of those studies. But one of the, um, I think, more important observations was a study that just looked at wounds and where male lions actually are injured, observed that male lions, when they fight, avoid the mane. So they're biting pretty much in front of the mane, which is the face, and they're biting behind the mane rather than on the mane itself, which is consistent with, with it providing protection. Um, I think male lions would be a particularly interesting group to do this type of analysis on in the future. This, in most cases, manes are providing protection against teeth, bites. In humans, 
because we don't fight with, with our teeth for the most part, uh, great apes do, but, but humans do not, it's somewhat different because we're striking with, with a fist or, or some type of weapon rather than biting. It is a somewhat different question and situation, right? With teeth, you've got more of a piercing blow where, where it's more of a blunt trauma with, with a fist. Obviously, this is understandably interesting to the general public. Um, and in addition to lots of social media attention, you got press coverage in more than 25 outlets so far, um, including Forbes and Newsweek and IFL Science. What was that experience like? Were you directly involved in that? This time, I have not been as involved as I have been in the past with similar studies. So we've done a lot of work looking at different aspects of, of the human, different characters of, of, of the human body that may provide an advantage in fighting. So bipedal posture, the proportions of our hand, the proportions of our face, uh, the way we stand on our heel, which is unusual. And in all those cases, in, in this, this beard study as well, we get a fair amount of attention because it's, it's, it's a controversial topic. And there's usually some blowback from science writers um, in, in terms of just not buying the argument. Um, in all these characters, if you think about the proportions of the hand or bipedal posture, those things we've shown provide advantages in fighting. It's just like we're suggesting the beard provides an advantage by protecting the face. But in every case, the anatomy that's involved is also used for other things, right? The proportions of our hand, which differ from great apes, we have, we have shorter fingers and a, a shorter hand, but a much stronger and, and longer thumb than the great apes. Well, those proportions allow us to curl the hand into a fist, which can be used as a club in a fight, right? And, and, and that fist posture protects the delicate bones of, of our hand and fingers. But for 70 years now, those proportions have been argued to be associated with manual dexterity, which so, is so important for humans. And so we come along and say, well, yeah, okay, of course, manual dexterity had to be important. Human, everything humans do, we do with our hands. But it may also be important to protect that delicate structure in a fight, particularly if it's gonna be used as a weapon. And the proportions that we have allow us to roll the fingers into our palm and, and wrap the thumb around those fingers to turn it into a clenched fist posture. So pretty much every time we come up with one of these studies, there is controversy and debate. And uh, we have had some of that associated with, with this beard study also. People just sort of incredulous that we would suggest that beards are somehow associated with fighting. But from our perspective, it just follows. It's, it's this incredibly sexually dimorphic character. It's most likely, given that we're talking about a mammal, given that we're talking about humans, that that sexually dimorphic character is in one way or another associated with physical aggression. That's a really interesting point. And I suppose people are quite often looking for a, a simple story. Right. It's sort of interesting that, that Darwin, who focused in on manes in, in these other animals and associate those manes with, with male-male fighting, when it came to humans, he, he, he took a completely different path. At that point, he switched to the other source 
of sexual selection, which is female choice, females picking an individual based on characters that suggest good genes. And he related beards to uh, something that females prefer. So he switched. And, it, and, and I think it's in part because there's some resistance to, to this idea that we may be anatomically specialized for, for fighting. Right? There's, it, it's a little scary. It's scary that that may be true because if it is true, it suggests that the physical aggression and fighting has been important in our evolutionary past, that in some way we have become uh, adapted to that uh, physical aggression. And if we're anatomically specialized for aggression, well, maybe we're behaviorally specialized for it too, or in some cases inclined towards it. And that's scary. And it's, I think that's where a lot of the blowback on our, our studies come from, is that fear that one, it either justifies bad behavior, or it means that, that uh, we're stuck with these negative emotions and the horrible things that come from them as a result. You know, fear, anger, uh, hatred, xenophobia, racism, right? In some way, all those things may be part of human nature, one side of, of who we are as, as a species. And I, I, I'm interested in part in this topic because I've always been concerned about human aggression, the extent to which we can be violent and trying to understand and make sense out of how the species that has this incredible capacity for, for empathy and selflessness and cooperation. No other species has, uh, has those traits to the extent we do. But on the other side, we also have a capacity for extreme violence, horrible, just horrible violence. And that's, that's characterized our history. And I think both of those things are parts of who we are as a species. And that if we, if we wanna prevent violence in the future, make the world more secure, safer, we need to understand that if, it, if there is a dark side to, to uh, who we are. Gosh, that's, when you think about it in that sense, it's pretty confronting. Yeah. Darwin's obviously had an influence on how people think and have thought about this since. That's right. He started the conversation in a big way. It turns out he was right. For, for the most part, he was dead on in terms of uh, our, our current understanding of the role that natural selection versus sexual selection plays in, in the evolution of, of organisms. There's obviously still a lot more to learn. What are you working on now? Basically, midway through my career, I, got, I became interested in this question of, of the trade-offs between specialization for locomotion, economical walking and running versus specialization for fighting. And so I, I, I bounce back and forth. I start thinking about some aspect of some organism from the point of view of locomotion or from the point of view of fighting, and then realize that there's, if I'm thinking about fighting, I realize, well, there's actually a really important locomotor side to this story as well. And so um, years ago, we were working with dogs and I was thinking about the role that the neck plays in prey capture and, and in, in fighting in most tetrapods and uh, realized that, yeah, well, the neck may also be super important in running as well in, in that what we think and what we're pursuing right now is the idea that the neck is part of the musculoskeletal 
core of the forelimbs. So a bunch of the muscles that swing the limbs forward and actually swing the forelimbs back when a, an animal runs, and those muscles are true for us too in swinging and moving our arms, actually attach to the neck and to the skull. And so the axial muscles of the neck need to provide what is called core stabilization. So we're thinking of the neck as part of our core. And so we're doing a lot of different work. We're working in humans, we're also working in lizards, and we're hoping to start doing some work in, in quadrupedal mammals, uh, four-legged mammals here in the near future. Just looking at what the neck does in a running animal. So I just had a couple more questions about the coverage you got. How did you get the promotion? How did that come about? There was um, one press release uh, that the journal put out. And so everything, all the coverage we've gotten came from ultimately from that one press release. I helped the, uh, the editors of the journal compose the press release. So there was a, a conversation about that, uh, but they did most of it. Okay. We like to finish these interviews by asking what your advice would be to other researchers who want to engage the general public with their work. Well, I'm not sure I have any specific advice other than an observation. Uh, and that is over the years, the work that has gotten the most attention has been the work that's in one way or another related to, to humans. In my case, sometimes we, we put out work on, on other species that I think is particularly exciting. I, and I expect or anticipate that other people will think that. And yeah, sometimes there's a tension, but it's never as broad as when we're doing something that, that relates to our own species. And, and I, the other thing that has tended to, to draw attention to this work is the controversial nature of it. The fact that it's problematic for, for some people that we would be suggesting things as we do in this, in this paper, that part of the reason there may be facial hair in, in human males is that it provides protection in a fight. I think that controversy draws attention as well. So the content, of course, of what you do is very important. We have not intended to draw attention, but, but I think it's to the point now where we can predict. For example, we knew, we knew this beard study was going to attract attention. Uh, even as we were starting the study, we, we knew if we got anything interesting, there was going to be media attention. Yeah. I, I think people like to see themselves in stories as well, don't they? That's right. And so and in any time you're working on an unusual aspect of, of humans, people are going to have some interest in that for that reason, because it is about them. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing, sharing your story with us. It was really, really interesting. I, I greatly appreciate your interest in this, in this study. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next month with another headline-grabbing study. Curious what sort of attention your article's getting? Find out at altmetric.com. Until next time.